And for those of us here, let's pray as we begin. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Last week, I introduced you to James by digging into just one verse, the salutation in verse 1 of chapter 1. We learned that James, the author of this letter that we're going to be studying this entire summer, is the half-brother of Jesus, and he's the leader of the Jerusalem church, pretty important guy. But we spend most of our time looking at the title that James chooses for himself, he doesn't choose the title Apostle or Jesus' half-brother, not Supreme Leader of the Jerusalem Church, though he could have chosen any of those. No, he chooses the title Servant. It's the title of honor for James. And my challenge last week to everyone that was here was, what, if, what would it mean for us to take that title of Servant as our title of honor in whatever we're called to do as well? Whether you're a student, or a retiree, or anything in between, what would it mean if that was the title that meant the most to us? Now, I do promise that we are going to move a little quicker than one verse per week uh, as we go this summer, but here's the amazing thing. There's at least two really key parts of verse one that we didn't even talk about last week, and this is what I love about studying the Bible. The more, this, more you study it, the more you realize that every word is pregnant with meaning and worthy of contemplation, even sometimes worthy of an entire sermon. So that said, i got to go back to verse 1 just briefly. The second half of verse 1 that we didn't even get to last week, uh, and it's going to lead us to verse 2 and beyond. James writes to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. 12 tribes of the dispersion. That's his audience. Now, what can we glean about his audience from this? Well, the 12 tribes is a, a classic name for Judaism, uh, and it's not just a figurative name here for James. Ten of the 12 tribes of the Old Testament Judaism had disappeared. They had been sent into exile and had become assimilated into culture, and they'd never been heard from again. The dispersion, occasionally translated as the diaspora, refers to being scattered, and particularly Jews who were scattered. It's clear that James is writing to Christian Jews and, of course, any non-Christian Jews who happen to be listening in. And while it's possible that James is writing his letter that would be uh, and, and meant it to be circulated widely to a bunch of different places, the scope of the letter seems kind of uniquely suited for Christian Jews who were in Jerusalem or in the region around Jerusalem. So our other option for the word dispersion here is probably a more symbolic, symbolic one. In Acts 11, we read about how Christians became dispersed among the nations due to intense persecution. The word dispersion, again, it means scattered abroad, and I'm convinced that this is really what James is addressing, this persecution. He's, he's recognizing the persecution that these Christian Jews were facing in Jerusalem. Some of it was so intense that Jews had to be scattered. Uh, these Christian Jews had to be scattered abroad in order to avoid the persecution. So when James writes this letter, the tensions were kind of at an all-time high. There was massive economic hardship going on. There were political tensions uh, with the Roman occupiers that were at a boiling point. And even there was, there was a rampant persecution that was going on in the temple where 
Jewish non-Christians, the, the priests of the Jewish non-Christians, were withholding money of tithes from anyone who claimed Jesus Christ. So the Christians were, were very marginalized, and, and even sometimes they were beaten and stoned. There were repeated outbursts of violence in the streets by zealots, and often Christians were the targets because they were seen as sympathetic to Rome. So many Christians scattered. The ones who stayed were extremely vulnerable. And when James writes to the dispersed, I believe that he's writing to many who are actually physically dispersed. But he's also saying that Christians, if you're a follower of Christ, you're dispersed in this world. <laughs> this world is not our home. <laughs> he writes to all who are scattered, both physically and emotionally and spiritually. So that's the audience. That's the setting here. And that brings a lot of color to us as we dive into verse 2 and beyond. Here's verse 2. Brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy. It's okay for us this morning to admit that most of us would prefer that this verse were not in the Bible. It's not easy to face the trials that are going on in our lives. But when we are facing them, we certainly don't want anyone to tell us that we're supposed to be joyful in the midst of them, right? Joy would almost cheapen that experience. I'll tell you something, nothing is more frustrating for me as a pastor that when I'm, I'm in a conversation with you and things are getting in depth and, we're sh and you're starting to share your life and I start to see the tears come and then a wall goes up and I hear, no, 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 it's okay, everything's good, everything's good. That's really hard for me. That's not the kind of joy that James can be talking about, right? I'm very aware that some of you are facing trials today. Some of them I know, many of them I don't. So I've been listening intently for stories of trials this week, just throughout my work week. I've had multiple conversations with people about marriages that are falling apart. I visited a couple people in the hospital that are in immense pain, so much so that one of them just, one of them just said, I just want to leave this earth. I just can't do it anymore. I spent time with a new refugee friend of mine who's from Syria, and his home city is the city of Homs. I have a picture of his home city here. As I was driving him to a, a dental appointment, he began to tell me about the death of his father and his brothers in refugee camps. He talked about his, his hometown through tears, and he said, there is no Homs anymore. Can you imagine that? There is no Homs anymore. I've been corresponding with my dear friend Martin Bonilla in Nicaragua about the political situation that's going on in that beautiful country, which some of you I think have probably read about. He wrote this to me on, on Tuesday, and I quote, Since last week, Nicaragua has become a land of horror and terror. Paramilitaries are terrifying everyone. Technically, we're under a curfew until 7 p.m. After that, you're on your own. A USA citizen was killed. Several innocent people have been killed, robbed, or kidnapped. At this moment, there is no safety to go look for a job. Many companies are closing their businesses at 3 p.m. and others are laying off their employees. Please continue to pray for our son so that he can be able to leave Nicaragua with a student visa and go to America. Here, the government has started persecuting young people that they think are university students. Yesterday, I wasn't able to reach the airport because of roadblocks. I was stuck on one for at least two hours. And then the police were shooting tear gas and real bullets. Please also pray that we can have enough food. So let me tell you how I didn't respond to any of these people. 
my brothers and sisters, <laughs> consider it joy whenever you face trials of any kind. I did not tell that to Martina. I did not tell that to Ziad or anyone who was in a hospital bed or any of those who are in mourning. I didn't tell them to be joyful. To me, that would feel like a betrayal of trust. It would be so tone deaf. So it's fair to ask, is, it, is, is James just a really insensitive guy? Is that what's going on here? Well, no. In fact, what he's saying is absolutely essential for mature Christian living. To begin with, James does not command us to wear artificial happy faces, those masks that so many of us think we need to wear in church or in Christian circles. James is not asking us to deny our true emotions. Notice the verb in this verse, consider, consider. While we cannot just will ourselves to be jovial when we're down, that would be wrong of us, we can choose how we think about the situation that we're in. He's asking his readers to consider the trials that you're going through as a reason for joy. So let me be clear about something, especially for those of you who are really honestly facing uniquely difficult trials right now in your life. James does not claim that everything that happens to us is somehow good and therefore a reason for joy. Many of the trials that come our way are just plain bad. I believe that. And I believe that many of the trials that you face are not directly from God. The point is that we can choose joy in the midst of whatever we're facing. With the remainder of this passage, James offers three reasons. He structures it this way. Three reasons why we ought to consider choosing joy in the midst of trials. And here are those three reasons, and this is going to be a way for us to walk through this text. Reason one, Christians should respond to trials by rejoicing at the maturity that they can foster. The maturity that they can foster. In verses 3 and 4, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. I found these couple verses to be both uh, over-applied and under-applied in Christian circles. Over-applied in the sense that some folks make out every single trial in their life that it must be a sign from God that God must have sent this for some reason for me to understand something. It is not automatic that trials in our lives are going to guarantee blessings for us or a deeper understanding or maturity in this life. I've also seen them underapplied because Paul makes it clear that God's power is actually perfected in our weakness, our human weakness, and that his grace is sufficient for us to endure. The point being this, I think we have an odd relationship with trials and difficulties by and large. We either just simply want God to take it away, or we really try and over-spiritualize the trials in our lives to see God giving us some sort of sign in the midst of our troubles. And I don't think God intends that. James says that if we would look to God in the midst of our troubles to preserve us and to grow us and mature us, we often can come out on the other side of these trials stronger and more whole than when we began. Those are the kind of character traits that people in this world are looking for all the time. But so often, they, they desire to gain these things without having to go through the suffering that's required for them to have it. So James goes on in verses 5 through 8 to encourage his listeners to seek God's wisdom in the midst of trials so that we can stay on track for maturity and growth on the other end. 
rather than us pretending like we know God's will in the midst of perplexing situations, James teaches us to be sure of whom we are trusting for the answers to our questions. We ought not to waver between earthly and godly wisdom. Earthly wisdom is always going to encourage us to escape trials, to get out of them as quickly as possible. But godly wisdom gives us a longer view and hope in the midst of our difficulties. Hope for growth, hope for maturity. Most of us are conditioned to turn to God only when every other option is exhausted. But what I hear James saying here is turn to God on the front end of the difficulties that you have and say, God, what might you have for me in the midst of these trials? This is a totally oversimplified uh, uh, image here, but I really hate running. Anybody else with me there? Thank you. It's good to know I'm not alone. Um, you don't need to tell me that my body is not created to run. I already know that. <laughs> Full disclosure, the only time I ever run is at night because I'm convinced I do really strange things with my hands when I run, and I don't want anyone to make fun of me. So it's not fun for me to, to go running, and I do do it on occasion. Why do I do it? Why would I do that? Because I appreciate how I feel at the end of a run. It makes me healthier. It makes me more vigorous. Oftentimes, some of my most robust prayer times are when I'm out for a walk or when I'm out for a run. I can endure the running, even though I hate it, because of how it changes me. Even though that while I'm doing it, there's very little that I enjoy, and that's okay. If running didn't change me, if it didn't have any effect on me, there's no way I would ever do it, <laughs> right? And that's James's point. Trials, difficulties in our life, they're not fun. We don't ask for them. We don't seek them. But God does good work through them often. It's an opportunity to grow and mature and seek his wisdom and be changed. So that's reason number one. Reason number two, Christians should respond to trials by viewing them as leveling experiences. Leveling experiences. Verses 9 through 11 talk about what scholars call the great reversal. It might have popped out when it was being read for you. Let the believer who is lowly boast in being raised up and the rich be brought low. This might seem like kind of a random departure for James from the argument that he's making about trials, but it's actually really in line with this teaching. It's called the great reversal because it's a biblical theme that James is falling into from, from very early on. We, we read in the Old Testament the Israelites defeating the Canaanites. Uh, we go to the Virgin Mary in her song in, in, in Luke 1 about the, the lowly being raised up and, and the proud being taken down. The, the echoes, um, there are echoes in James's writing in, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, particularly the Beatitudes, which is all about leveling, and, and also several of Jesus' parables. James is stepping into the, this tradition, the lowly are raised and the rich are humbled. Now remember that the trials that James's audience were facing were primarily economic, right? So it makes sense that James would use this image of rich and poor, but regardless of the image that he used, trials have a way of leveling things for us. They are a leveling agent for us. If we're in a position of plenty and we go through hardship, it reminds us that we're not infallible and that we don't have control of everything in our lives, that we're not immune to difficulties, that the rain falls on both the just and the unjust. If we're in a position of need and we go through hardships, we get to experience the blessing of, of maturity and growth that God provides us and so be elevated. Just hearing about other people's hardships for me can be a leveling experience, honestly. 
as I was hearing from my new Syrian friend about his life, I was like, geez, I better not call anything that goes on in my life trials, right? I was immediately humbled and, and became more grateful. It's unfair that I should have to live the life that I live while he's had to live the life that he's lived. Life is unfair. Life is not a leveling agent. But when God is allowed in, he levels our experiences. He humbles me, who's been given so much, and he raises up my, my Syrian friend who has lost so very much. Reason three. Christians should respond to trials not by blaming God, but by acknowledging that he's the source of everything good. Verses 12 through 18 state this pretty clearly. We can choose joy in the midst of our trials because we know that God is, is, not, God is good and that he is not sending these troubles as a temptation or a test for us. God doesn't participate in temptation in this way. It's not in his nature. James instead calls us to own our own brokenness and sin because we live in a fallen world, a sinful world. That means trials are going to come. And so will temptations. These things are not a direct gift from God, but they are the result of our own sin and the sin of a broken world. But because God is the giver of all good gifts, we're obliged to turn always to God in dependence on him and respond in a way that would please him. Because God is single-minded, he only gives good gifts. It's like the only kind of gift he gives. We can be single-minded in following him and following his will. So when we put these three things together, Christians ought to respond to trials with joy because they lead to maturity, they serve as leveling experiences, and they put us back in relationship with the giver of all good gifts. This does not mean that we need to be bubbly and joyful in whatever troubles we're facing, but it does mean that we can rejoice in God's presence in the midst of our troubles and choose joy because we know that he is working in the midst of these trials and that he sees a future that we cannot see. And because he's the giver of, of only good gifts, we know that he's working towards the good in our lives. I was amazed this week at the sheer amount of trials, which I already shared with you. But you know what was even more amazing about these trials was that there was joy in the midst of these trials. The individuals facing the loss of, of marriage told me through tearful uh, joy about the opportunities that they've had to share the love of Jesus with other people in the midst of their pain. For those in physical pain, Jean Bristow is here this morning. Her word for her life is joy. She's been in immense back pain. And you know, every time I visit her or call her, you know what she says? How could I not be joyful? How could I not be joyful? My friend Martin in Nicaragua, he's, he's scared and upset. He's more troubled than he's ever been in his whole life. He, He's scared for his family, and it's legitimate. And for every article that he sends me about what's going on in Nicaragua, you know what the next thing he sends me is? A Bible verse. A Bible verse about God's faithfulness, his trust in the process, his trust in God's presence in the midst of hardship. My Syrian friend spoke of the, the devastation of his life in the city that he calls home and said that I give thanks every day for my life in Chicago and that I have a new home to replace the one that I've lost. You see, without Jesus, we're prone to kind of gloss over and push through trials and troubles and difficulties in our lives. But we who have decided to follow Jesus believe that he is with us in the midst of trials, and therefore, we can choose joy. When the world says, put, just put on a happy face, it'll be okay. Jesus says, be honest, 
about where you are and choose joy even, in the, even when it doesn't make sense in the midst of trials. Remember that James is addressing Christian Jews of the dispersion, those who have been literally scattered but also emotionally, spiritually scattered in this world, those who have been persecuted and maligned and overlooked. But these words of James mean even more when you know that he had to live these words out to the very end of his life. James ended up losing his life as a martyr to the very persecution that he's writing about here in chapter 1. During a brief brief period of, of leadership confusion, the Jewish high priest at the time gathered the Sanhedrin and charged James with heresy. And then they led him up to the highest point of the temple and they cast him off and then they stoned his body just to make sure. I like to think that At that moment, at the top of the temple that he was reciting his own words, consider it joy, brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. Such a story makes my trials, and I hope yours, pale in comparison, and makes me all the more likely to embrace hardship as a place where God is very near and at work giving good gifts. And I believe by the grace of God, that James' words weren't just for that audience, but they come to us as well. As part of the dispersion, exiles from our true heavenly home. Trials are inevitable. Some of us don't face big trials right now, but we will someday. I think we know that. Some of you are experiencing real, serious, uniquely difficult trials right now. So as a way of response... I want to invite you just in a moment of silence to either name in the silence of your own heart the trials that you're facing, just lift them up to God, or if you can't identify a major trial right now in your life, giving thanks and saying, God, when I do come to a major trial in my life, would you give me the courage to choose joy? So let me just give you a few moments of silence to lift those up to God. to pray for you this morning and particularly those of you who are going through those unique and difficult trials I'm not going to ask anyone to come up here and and share all of them but I recognize that some of you may need a little extra prayer this morning if you're someone who's going I'm I'm going through a uniquely difficult time of trial during this prayer I just want to invite you to stand where you are I'm not going to make you say anything out loud but just as a recognition of going God knows what I'm going through And as we pray, if there's somebody standing next to you, would you just put a hand or raise a hand towards them as we we pray together? So feel free if, if you'd like to to stand at this time. And let's pray together. Lord, you know what is happening in our lives. You know the trials that we face. You know the difficulties that trouble our hearts. So Lord, for all of those who deal with significant trials in this moment, I ask that you might open the door for them to consider joy. 
not as a way of escaping the trials that face them, but as a way of, of defiance of the way of the world, instead saying, I choose to trust in a Savior and a Lord who knows the future better than I do, who is with me in the midst of these troubles, who goes with me in the midst of these trials. Lord, would you give them hope this day that you are indeed with them? And for those of us this morning who can't identify a serious trial in our life, we give you thanks, but we know that one day we will be standing and we're going to need people to surround us too. So we pray that you would give us courage and resolve so that we might choose joy. Lord, we thank you that you never leave us, that you offer us the hope of new life. Would you give us the courage to consider joy in all things, we pray in your name. Amen. I invite you to stand and we'll sing together as we close. Thank <clears throat> you.